Well, good morning again, everybody. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, if you're on the stream, we want to, again, uh, welcome you as well. We're glad that you've signed on. You're being part of our worship gathering this morning. Uh, we're here uh, in a new sermon series. We've, we've started for the last couple weeks here, but it's our fall series, and we're calling it The New Normal. What we're doing is we're looking at uh, an early part of Jesus's ministry, really his preparation before it in Matthew 3 and 4. We're going to be taking a, a good uh, long look at these passages uh, as Jesus is really preparing uh, for a new normal uh, for the people of Israel. And so we're looking at that and we're asking questions of ourselves about what does the new normal look like for us as Jesus was preparing that new normal as well. And one thing that's interesting about Matthew 3 and 4 is that it is the most most heavily quoted or at least heavily alluded to uh, a passage of scripture uh, that references the Old Testament. So we see more Old Testament quotes, more, Testament, more Old Testament allusions in Matthews 3 and 4 than anywhere else in the gospel. So what we found uh, interesting, what we thought we would do is we would look at this fall, we would look at Matthew 3 and 4 through the lens of the Old Testament, which is what they do. And so we're going every other week here. One week we're going to look at the Old Testament passage, and then the next week we're going to look, be in Matthew 3 and 4, to see where that allusion was coming from. And we'll go kind of back and forth between that. So really see each message as a two-part series. And so this uh, week uh, we will be actually in Isaiah 64 to get us ready uh, for the Matthew 3, 13 through 17 passage, which is Jesus' baptism narrative. Uh, Pastor Maya will be preaching that next week. And so this week we're going to look at Isaiah uh, 64, which is the allusion to it. So kind of see it as a two-part series each every two weeks here. So we're excited about doing that. And so that's where we'll be, even though we're in a series on Matthew 3 and 4. We start today here in Isaiah 64. So if you would, would you stand with me? We're going to read the passage this morning. And one thing I like to do is have you stand when the passage is being read. It sort of differentiates between God's words, which are worth standing for, and my words, which you could sit down for that. That's not quite as important as God's. And we start off with a prayer. We call it the Shema. It's uh, out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a way to focus our attention with everything going on in the world. Help us to focus can, and really zero in on what God will have for us today. So say it uh, after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We'll be in Isaiah 64 today. This is the word of the Lord. It says this, Oh, would you rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins are swept away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. 
We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look at us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burnt with fire, and all that we treasure lies in ruin. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silence and punish us beyond measure? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When we first moved into our house about five years ago here in Williamsville, uh, we knew going in that there was a lot of things that we were going to have to replace. We knew that basically all the appliances were going to have to be replaced. We knew the furnace was on its last leg and that was going to have to go. But one thing we didn't anticipate having to replace is one of our bedroom doors. And the reason for that is all the doorknobs on our bedrooms were old. I think they were original to the house about 50 years ago. And it was one of these doorknobs, very old doorknobs, that uh, first off, it locked from the inside, which that's normal. That's what you want a doorknob to do. But it didn't have that little hole on the other side so that if you accidentally lock yourself out, you can kind of pop the lock, right, and get in. You know what I'm talking about there? They didn't have that. And the screws to disassemble it were on the inside. So if by chance uh, the door got locked and you weren't inside, you didn't know really what to do, or at least I didn't as a novice homeowner know what to do. Well, you can see where this is going. We were unpacking early on and one of our youngest kids, which uh, will not be named, uh, was playing in that room and managed to play with the lock, managed to lock it, and then walked out and closed the door behind them. Now, I got there, and I realized I couldn't get in. There was no way to pop the lock in my mind, and there was, I couldn't disassemble it. And I had no idea how to get in. And so I did what any person in my situation would do. I just didn't go in that room for, like, months, literally. We just simply didn't go in the room. Now, it was a storage room at that point. There was just kind of a spare bedroom, and we were unpacking. And so, like, it, we went a long time, and we just simply didn't go in the room. Then finally we realized, okay, we can't, this can't be what is going to be forever. We can't go years and years without using a room. This is ridiculous. And so I racked my brain trying to figure out how to get into this room. And the only way I could come up with is to bust the door down, literally. I busted, so I found hammers. I hammered this thing. I did that thing like in the movies where you run and you try to like SWAT team it, and that did not go well. Um, that was, I'm not that strong, and that did not go well. Um, and finally, I, I got just things to like battery ram it until finally I, I cracked it right where the doorknob is and got, got in. Now, I said this in the first service, and I'd ask of you as well, I'm sure there was a better way to get into that room. I'm sure there is someone sitting right now, or if you're watching on the simulcast and, and you're sitting there going, you just could have done that. I'm sure there is. Please don't come after the service and tell me the way I could have done it. Would you just let me live in a world in which the best thing to do was to smash the door down? It was way more fun, and I just want to believe that that was the best way, okay? So just keep it to yourself. I'm looking at you, Cliff Miller. You already, I already saw that comment, okay? So we're just going like, to leave it here. So you know, once we got in and we kind of laughed about it, we, I was talking with my wife, Molly, and we thought, well, what would have happened, though, 
if the culprit, who is still not going to be named, if the culprit locked the door, but in, instead of locking themselves out, they locked themselves in. Well, what would have happened if they had done it? And they were probably too small to probably replicate what they did. They were just kind of playing at the doorknobs and probably twisted. And I don't know if we had given directions, they'd have been able to pop that back. So he said, well, what would we have done if, if the kid— w- would we have left them there for months? Would we just slip food under there and say, like, sorry, well, you know, like, you survive. Once you figure it out, you can come out. N- no, if, if our kid was in there, if, if, if my child was in there, my fatherly instincts would have kicked in, right? I would have absolutely uh, knocked that door down immediately to get to them, right? I mean, that's just—we we wouldn't have had this laissez-faire. We would have gotten to him. I would have torn that door down to make sure my young child— was okay. Now, five years later, we still have not replaced that door, okay? I've patched it as best I could. We kind of made it work. It it closes, but you know how like any door, if it's not aligned right or there's something wrong, like it just doesn't really work well anymore. This is the, the, now the bedroom of our youngest daughter, uh, Rudy, who's a, who's a baby, and trying to sneak out of that room is difficult because the door doesn't quite work. So you're always like, it always pops and snaps and wakes her up, and so it probably at some point should get, but we just haven't gotten around to the door yet. Would you, as we've read uh, Isaiah chapter 64, would you believe that actually Isaiah's prays a prayer that's very similar to this experience? He, he prays a prayer about someone coming to rescue them. But first, let's give a little a backdrop to it. Now, Isaiah was a prophet in the kingdom of Judah. Now, if you uh, remember kind of the Bible story, you have, you know, these Israelites who are in Egypt. They get set free. They wander the desert, and finally they get to the promised land. And so these 12 tribes uh, of Israel come together, and they are a unified kingdom in the promised land. And they're led by uh, unified kings. Think Saul, or think David, or Solomon. But after Solomon, uh, there comes a point where the two kingdom, the kingdom splits into two. And so you get these two kingdoms. One is called, the first one, the ten tribes that break away from it, is called the kingdom of Israel. These are ten tribes that break away, and they call themselves the kingdom of Israel. I guess they got the naming rights. They were allowed to still call themselves Israel. So these ten tribes go up north, and they live, and they are now an independent nation, and they call themselves the kingdom of Israel. Now, the kingdom of Israel had one evil king after another. There was not one king in all of Israel, generation after generation, that followed in the ways of God. And then you had this second kingdom, sort of whatever was left over. There was the remaining two tribes, and they became what's called the kingdom of Judah, named after the bigger of the two tribes, the tribe of Judah. So they were the kingdom of Judah. And when you compare the kingdom of Judah to the kingdom of Israel, uh, there are some kind of startling contrasts. The first one is Judah was significantly smaller than the kingdom of Israel. This makes sense, right? There were 10 tribes in Israel. They had more land, more men, more, more experience. I mean, they were bigger than the tribe of Judah. So Judah was smaller. Also, Judah, if you think about it, Judah was more alone and isolated, because they only, Judah only had they, one other tribe, Benjamin, that were sort of their friends. And Benjamin was the smallest of all the tribes. And so all you had, if you were Judah, all you had was the runt of the litter 
next to you, where the other guys, the, the kingdom of Israel, northern uh, Israel, they had 10 tribes. They were much bigger, much larger, and could support one another uh, much more significantly. So if you're Judah, you're smaller. If you're Judah, you're alone, you're isolated. And of course, with that comes uh, less power. They were powerless in compared to their northern distant brothers. They were powerless, alone, and small. But unlike Israel, the kingdom of Judah had a mixture of, of good kings and bad kings. They, sh- they definitely had their share of bad apples, but they also had some kings that were faithful to God, that followed his ways and led the kingdom of Judah uh, in faithfulness. And so when Isaiah gets onto the scene, when he starts his public ministry, he really involves himself mainly with two kings in the kingdom of Judah. The first one is Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was not a follower of God. He did not do well. He did not follow God uh, in his own ways. He followed his own, Ahaz's own ways. He was not faithful to God. And then there was Hezekiah after him, which was, which was Ahaz's son. Now, Ahaz did follow in the ways after God. And so, if you're Isaiah, you had these two kings that were primarily your kings as you are being a prophet in Jerusalem. One, the kind of front half of his ministry was uh, an unfaithful king, and the second half was a faithful king. So in summary, if I could kind of summarize that whole bit to you to kind of help visually, if you take a look at this, again, there are these two kingdoms. There was the kingdom of Israel, which is the ten tribes in the Okay, they were big, they were supported, they were powerful, and yet they had no faithful king to the Lord. Okay, so this is the first one. Bigger, stronger, more powerful, more supported, but no faithful king to the Lord. And then you had the kingdom of Judah, which is where uh, uh, Isaiah is, is, is ministering, where he's living. He's a part of the kingdom of Judah. Then these are two tribes in the south. They're small, they're isolated, alone powerless. And this uh, uh, Isaiah's story revolves around these two kings, King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. Okay? And so this is what the background and summary of it. Now, when Isaiah writes his magnum opus, his big 66 chapter major prophetical work, we call it the book of Isaiah, when he writes this, it's actually divided into two parts. Now, the first part is dedicated to the events of King Ahaz. So the first half of Isaiah, if, if, you, if you're reading it, is really dedicated to the events surrounding Ahaz. And this first half, you can say, is a bit more fiery, a bit more uh, doom and gloom, a bit more warning, because uh, uh, Isaiah is seeing the kingdom of Israel. He's seeing the neighbors to the north, and he sees that there's no faithfulness, there's no king that's fallen, and he knows, because he's a prophet and all, he knows what's coming for them. He knows that destruction, about 20 years after uh, Isaiah starts his ministry, 20 years later, he knows something bad's going to go down the road. And so much of it is oracles and, and warnings, both to Israel, but mainly to Ahaz, to say, don't follow in their footsteps. Don't be like them. Don't go after the gods they go after. Follow, uh, follow the Lord. It's this warning, this kind of fiery, uh, doom and gloom type of uh, scenario half of Isaiah. But of course, Ahaz doesn't listen, even though he warns him about it. He says that the king of Israel, your brother, you better take a look. You better see what's going to happen there. And sure enough, that's exactly 
what happens. In fact, here in Isaiah 9, uh, really early on, it says, he says this. This is, uh, this is Isaiah talking to Ahaz. He says this, The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, which is the capital city in Israel. So he's talking about Israel here. Who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild them with dressed stone. And the fig tree has been, has been felled, but we will replace them with cedar. But the Lord has strengthened foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. He keeps saying, like, Israel is not going down a good Take a look, Ahaz, because this is what's going to happen to you. And sure enough, sure enough it does. He, Isaiah, with the rest of Judah, watched the ten tribes of Israel crumble around them to the Assyrians in 720 B.C. So Isaiah is there. He's telling Hezekiah, or he's telling Ahaz, take a look at what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen to you if you're not careful. And sure enough, in 720 B.C., the Assyrians come and they absolutely demolish the kingdom of Israel. Total destruction. Now, the second half of the book of Isaiah deals with his interactions then with Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is faithful to the Lord. Hezekiah goes there. He largely does walk in the ways of the Lord. But again, being a prophet and all, unfortunately, Hezekiah can see what's coming. And, 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 and Isaiah, know, excuse, Isaiah knows what's coming. And Isaiah knows that even though Hezekiah is faithful, the kings that are going to come after him aren't going to be. And that he sees from the Lord that destruction for the kingdom of Judah is coming as well. We, see, we actually read in the book of 2 Kings, uh, Isaiah and Hezekiah are having a conversation together. And, and something that he says here in 2 Kings 20, he's talking to Hezekiah and he says this. He says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all of your predecessors that stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. And they will become servants in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah sees what's coming. He's saying, Hezekiah, you're doing well, but you know what? There's going to be guys after you that aren't. And, and there's going to come a day where you're going to experience the same fate as Israel. And sure enough, 134 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah would fall to those Babylonians as well. So if you're Isaiah right now, you are a man in the middle. You're stuck in the middle. You're caught in the in-between, in the in between the destruction that has already taken place in Israel and the destruction that's going to happen to your hometown uh, of Judah. He's in the in-between, the, the, the destruction that is here and the destruction that is to come. So in our passage this morning, Isaiah has gotten to the very last chapters. He's in 64 of 66, and the first 63 chapters have been all about warnings and oracles and doom and gloom, and it's coming. Don't worry. You need to, you need to pay attention to this. We've already seen the destruction in Israel. Judah, your, your time is coming. And he gets now to the very last chapters. It's almost as if he's exhausted by the weight of it all. You see, Judah was small, alone, and powerless, watching the world crumble around them. Judah was small, alone, powerless, 
watching the world crumble around them. And in the midst of this, Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He's saying, God, there's a mess right now. We are absolutely—we've already seen destruction. Destruction is coming. I'm in the middle of all of this. We're right at the worst moments in our history. God, would you come down and help us? Would you come down and rescue us? I've just written 63 chapters about all that's going on. I'm tired. God, God, would you come and rescue us? Now, the word rend in the Hebrew is the word kara, which means to rip or to tear open. See in the Old Testament, when, when, when guys get really upset in the Old Testament, they will tear their clothes. They'll get so distraught, they'll just rip open their clothes. It doesn't seem like a good use of resources. There's some anger management there that, that seems to be uh, needed uh, there. But this is what they do. This was the practice to tear your clothes. It's that same word, that kara, literally ripping apart something, the cloth or the fabric of something, to tear it apart. So Isaiah's prayer here is, God, will you literally, will you tear open the heavens, the very fabric of the universe? Would you tear it open to come down? There's this deep guttural longing in his tone, if, I, I, if you can hear it. This ache in his bones for God to intervene. And for Isaiah, it's not just that you'd come down to sort of check things out. It's not like, hey, God, would you come down just to kind of assess the situation and give us some guidance? If you read in our passage, he prays for God to do something big. We, we, we sang about it today. God, you are the God of great things. You've done these great things, these big, huge, awesome, the passage says, awesome things. Would you do it again? As Isaiah 64 continues, it says this. He said, Will you rend the heavens and come down, tear it open, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you. God, we need you to do something big here. We need you to come and fix some stuff because it's really bad right now. I'm a man in between destructions. Would you tear the very fabric of the universe apart and come down? Because we've seen you do it before. Since ancient times, we've heard and we've seen these things, these stories that we've heard from our ancestors about how you intervene, you stepped up, you, you came down to rescue us. Will you do that again? We need that right now. Will you do something big in our midst? And what's interesting is as the, as the passage, if, you've caught, if you caught it, the, as the passage continues, right in the middle of this plea, Isaiah acknowledges that our sin was the cause of all of this. It's not like God just decided to uh, be random and just throw some judgment their way. He, he fully recognizes that we are 100% to blame for the mess that we're in. 
God, we are in a mess, and it's only because of our sin that it got us there. Check it out as we continue. It says this, but when we continued to sin against your ways, we continued to do it. Even though we heard of all the great things you used to do for our ancestors, we continued to sin against you. You were angry. So how then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. You've literally, you've given us over to our own sins. That's why we're in. We're in. You didn't just give to us arbitrarily. You gave us over to our own sins, and we put ourselves in this. The, the, the responsibility rests squarely in our laps. We deserve everything we've got. But gladly, thankfully, Isaiah 64 doesn't end there. That's not the end of the story. But what is the end of the story is a question mark. Actually, this passage ends with a question. He says this, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. I love that. Lord, you're our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our, glo- our holy glory, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned like fire. And all that we treasure lie in ruins. After all this, Right? He's admitting, he's, and that's a future. He's saying, Jerusalem, the, the town, I, my, my hometown, it's going to lie in ruins. I can see it 134 years from now. It's going to happen. We've already seen the destruction. Your holy lands up in the north, they're already gone. My hometown here, the, it's going to go here soon. It's all a, lies in ruin. And after all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? You see, the chapter ends with a question, a longing, an ache in our bones that says, God, will you come? What's the answer to the question? God, will you show up in big ways? Dad, we're alone. We're small. We're powerless. We're watching the world crumble around us. Will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent? Or will you tear the heavens? Come down. Dad, will you keep silent? So how's the last six months been for you? Have you felt small? alone, powerless, watching the world seemingly crumble around you? And doesn't it seem like everything in life right now ends with a question mark? Like every conversation I had ends with a, well, yeah, we hope, right? Or, or like, yeah, I, I, I would love to, I, I hope we can do that, or that would be great, or we're looking forward to it, we hope it can come. When that, st- when that certain thing happens, then we can do this. Everything in life is one giant question mark. 
we feel small, we feel alone, isolated from one another, powerless. It feels like the world is crumbling all around us. We ask questions like, when will we be able to do that again? Will school be able to continue? Will there be a wave? When will a vaccine come and will it be effective? When will we get back to normal? And it feels like we're exhausted by the weight of it all. But, but, but there's a bigger question, I think, behind all of those questions. And the bigger question is, what do I put my hope in? What, what do I rest in? Where can I feel like there's some sort of footing underneath my shoes? What do I put my hope in? Because my routines and my networks and my comforts and my freedoms are all changing and I need God to do something big here. You've done it before. Will you do it again? And here's the thing. It is our sin that has put us in this situation. This isn't something God did arbitrarily just to teach us some lesson. Our sin we have been given over to our own sin. COVID, cancer, and all of their illnesses exist because we live in a fallen world of our making where our bodies break down, get sick, and eventually die. This is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not the way it was designed. Injustice exists because we live in a fallen world of our own making where greed and apathy thrive. It's not the way it's supposed to be. This is our own doing. We've been given over to our own sin. And if it's not this, it's going to be the next thing. And it's going to be the next thing. And it's going to be the next thing. Because we live in a world of our own making. And in the midst of it, as we sit in the middle of it all, we cry out, God, will you come down. Because the path towards hope begins by not placing our hope in routines and networks and comforts and freedoms that are fleeing, but in a Father who has torn the heavens and has come down for us. Who has knocked down the door of heaven to get to you. Like I said, next week we'll look at Matthew 3, 13 through 17. But today, let me read you another account of that story in Mark. In fact, let me just read you a couple verses. It says this in Mark, first chapter, chapter 1. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. See, we know God will show up in a big way because he already has. He already has. It's completed. It is finished. And on the cross, God dealt with our sin and declared it so. And so now we get to sing what we will sing in a few minutes. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
He has come. He has torn down the wall of heaven. He's knocked the doors down. He's torn open the fabric of the universe to get to you. And his name is Jesus. So what do you feel in your life that's small? There's a lot of choices right now. Where do you feel small? Where do you feel alone, isolated, powerless? Where do you feel like the whole world is crumbling around you? Maybe it's COVID. Maybe it's uh, the the demonstrations and social unrest we're finding. Maybe, Maybe it's something in your personal life. But in the midst, in the middle of it all is a God who's torn down the walls, knocked the doors down, torn the fabric of creation open to get to you and start fixing the problem. For me, uh, I have a friend of mine, his name's Andy. Uh, and here's a picture of Andy and his two girls, Emma and Ellie. Uh, I was uh, at uh, uh, Dash's Marketplace, uh, Marketplace Cafe uh, on Thursday. I was finishing up this message. I was just praying, God, how do, we, how do we conclude? How do we close this thing out? And I needed to take a bit of a mental break. And so uh, I got on Facebook and just started kind of scrolling just to kind of take a little break. And uh, I, I ran into this post that he had just posted that day. Uh, my friend Andy he lives in Boston. He's a church planning friend. Of mine. In 2017, they found out that their oldest daughter, Ellie, was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and has been fighting it ever since. But just a few weeks ago, they discovered that their, their other daughter, Emmy, had showed a spot on her brain that was growing as well. And now they have two kids with frequent trips to the hospital. God, where are you in that? Where are you going to come down in that? Well, with this picture that he posted, he posted this picture. And then he said this, he wrote this. He said, at Boston Children's Hospital, with both Emmy and Ellie, a weird world where you have two oncology appointments for two daughters on the same day. The odds of two girls going through what they are going through are unmeasurable. But we still aren't sure what is going on with Emmy. Her scans show that her spot has grown. And now she needs more tests. Not the news we've been hoping for. But here's the thing. Because it's so real, it points to a more real God. God's done big things. And he's been doing big things. And he will continue to do big things. You see, all of these things are real. What you're going through, what you're feeling, like I said, whether it's COVID, whether it's uh, unrest, whatever it is that you're going through, it's real. We don't underplay them. We don't simply dismiss them or, or just give spiritual jargon to them. They are real. But the question is, will it point you to a more real God who's done something big, who's knocked down the door of heaven, who's torn the sky open to come down. You know, we never did replace that door. But maybe we never will. Because it reminds us of a God who did it first. And he has a name. But we'll get to that next week. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we serve a God, that we have a God who came down and rescued us. 
that you didn't leave us in the desolation and the destruction of our lives. That as we found ourselves in the middle of this world that's crumbling, that you came down to be with us. And that you dealt with all of this on the cross and declared it as finished. So now that we might sing, the Father's arms are open wide. Oh, come to the altar for our Papa's arms are open wide. That forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you. In your name I pray, amen.